Hey, Prairie Pod listeners. I'm Megan Benage, regional ecologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Dr. Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. I'm Sarah Bosick, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based out of the Morris Wetland Management District. And I'm Mike Worland. I'm a wildlife biologist with the Minnesota DNR Non-Game Wildlife Program. We're part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, and we're here to help you... Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Welcome back to the Prairie Pod, everybody. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited about what we're talking about today, and I cannot be more excited to introduce you to our brand new co host, Sarah. Introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, Megan. I'm Sarah Vosick. I am a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I am located at the Morris Wetland Management District in western Minnesota, and I'm super excited to be here. You did that so well. Nobody will even know that at the beginning of the podcast that it was a recording. You did that great. You sounded exactly Thanks. like you're recording. I'm really proud of you. Because we had to say it five times when we were practicing the intro. <laughs> Hey, excellence takes time. Excellence takes time. (laughs) It's true for prairies and it's true for people. (laughs) That's how it works. We're just going to jump right in here because we've got two very special guests with us and I have a lot of questions. Sarah, you have a lot of questions to ask. I do have a lot of questions. I know. This This is is a topic. It's going to be a really good one. Oh, we should, no, we should set lower expectations. (laughs) So then people like walk away being like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. We don't want to. This will be an okay podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's okay. Now we're just, this is no disrespect to our two guests today. We we should move on. (laughs) We should just go. (laughs) We should just move right on. Okay. We have discovered a fungus among us. So we talk a lot about diversity on this podcast. This is a thing that we talk about all the time, right? Diversity makes the world go round, particularly in prairie ecosystems. And so this week, we're again going underground to uncover the role of our vascular mycorrhizal fungi. Yes, I did have to practice saying that about 62 times because it is a mouthful, folks. (laughs) And if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't even know the words that that lady just said, just say AMF. And you can sound cool like all the other prairie ecologists. It's great. And we're going to explain a lot more about what AMF is and how it can contribute to success in prairie reconstructions. And we've brought two fabulous experts with us today. And I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, Diane, do you want to start? Sure. I'm Diane Larson. I work with the U.S. Geological Survey. I'm stationed at the University of Minnesota at St. Paul. Um, And I have gotten totally enthralled by these AMF, Um, but I'm more on the manager side of things. And Laura, I think, is more the expert on the actual organism. Perfect. Laura, go ahead. She's queued you right up. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. Okay. So I'm Laura Aldrich-Wolf, and I'm at North Dakota State University, and I'm a mycorrhizal researcher as well as just really fascinated by fungi that live in and around roots and interact with plants. Oh, this is going to be so good. Sarah, I'm excited. I can't even contain it. Okay, so the first question I have to ask to both of you, 
because everybody's going to want to know. Fungi, fungi, fungi. How do you say it? You get to you get to pronounce it however you like. Oh, <laughs> right? look at that! <laughs> so, because you know, if you're Italian, you're going to say fungi. And oh, right. Because if you're from the West Coast, like I am, you're going to say fungi. And yeah. then that lends itself to all sorts of puns. So it's good. There it is. Yeah. I say fungi all the time. Diane, do you say it different? Is there a different Midwestern? I'm Midwestern, so I say fungi too. What do you say? You know, you know I say it with a soft G, so fungi. Oh, fungi. <laughs> that wasn't even in my original choices. I like this. It sounds like a soup. There's a lot of choices. <laughs> there are a lot of choices. Fungi, fungi. What was the... Italian fungi. Fungi. Yeah. yeah, that's oh man. All right. Well, okay. We're gonna jump <laughs> right in. Say, say it with confidence, and everyone will think that they're wrong. <laughs> that's what we tell people when we're learning plants and that's they're right. struggling with Latin names. It's uh, we don't speak that language anymore. As long as you know what you're talking about and what plant you're looking at, and you can spell it. That's all that matters. Or you can get close in your spelling. Don't panic. I was it's okay. Spelling should okay. be optional, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Don't panic. As long as you can point it out to somebody and be like, "This one." This one on the list is what I'm talking about. That's all that matters. All right. Let's jump into this world of fascinating fungi. So what are AMF? Laura, you start us out. Okay. So um, AMF, or I often say AM fungi, um, are a group of fungi that have been associating with plants for as long as plants have been on land. Um, So even when we look at really early fossils of the first land plants, we see fungi in in their sort of they're not exactly roots, right? But they're they're proto roots. Um, we see really similar structures to what we see today. So this is a really ancient association between plants and fungi. And I think, despite the fact that it's ancient, we're still working out um, what they actually do in their interactions with plants. So we have, I think, more questions than answers at this point. Um, but Suffice it to say, it's this, it's this group of fungi, they're ancient, they've been associated with plants for a really long time, um, and so long, in fact, that they've lost their ability to live without plants. So while we can set up conditions that plants can live on their own, the fungi are dependent on plants. And we used to think it was for sugars, um, but recently, researchers have, have been able to show that they actually can't um, synthesize lipids on their own. They require precursor molecules from plants. So plants play a really important role in, in their nutrition. So, so they're dependent on plants for, for, for in order to, to survive. So I'm sure there's, this is one of those topics where there's 8,000 times more things that we don't know than we do, but could you give us a, f- few examples of what kind of role they play in the ecosystem and you know that relationship between the plants and the fungi is part of it but then what do we what do we kind of think we know (laughs) right (laughs) what do we think we know at this point um so what you'll notice is that that biologists are talking about am fungi will generally be careful to distinguish between talking about them in terms of them being symbionts and forming a symbiosis so living closely with plants versus being mutualists, where we're assuming that it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So we can show under different conditions that sometimes they're living closely with plants, but of course they're, they're benefiting themselves. 
right? And so then they may not necessarily be benefiting the plants. And the same thing, it can work the other way too, that the plants may be benefiting themselves from the relationship <laughs> at the expense of the fungi. Um, but we can also certainly see plenty of cases where it is a mutually beneficial relationship. And so the idea there is, is the plants are providing fungi with, the, with energy that they've lost the ability to acquire in any other way. While the fungi are, um, because they're colonizing the roots, remember living also as hyphae outside of the roots in the soil, they're definitely important for plant uptake of nutrients that become depleted around roots, so nutrients that aren't, don't move easily in soil water. Um, but then also because they're living inside the roots, they seem to play an important role in helping to protect the plants from pathogens, for example, from, from disease um, and also from pests, so things like nematodes. Uh, or at least I should say, right, there are good nematodes too for plants, but the nematodes that can be damaging to plants. So they play both this protective role and also the, definitely a nutrient acquisition role. And then I think something that's still really, um, that needs a lot more work is thinking about their role in, in drought and how they might protect plants from, from drought as well. What are some of the less mobile nutrients that you were just referencing? Well, so phosphorus is a key one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but also to some extent, ammonium would be less mobile, right? So nitrate is going to be readily mobile in the soil. So we think of that as being, as, as the, the fungi not being particularly important for, for nitrate, um, but certainly potentially for ammonium, they could be as important as well. But the key one would be phosphorus, then also zinc, copper, to some extent, boron. Diane, you have things you want to add there? Nope, you've covered it. <laughs> not every day you get to mention boron in a prairie podcast so <laughs> true. I, I feel like that was a win <laughs> like regardless of whatever happens next which we're already out <laughs> of the game <laughs> diane fielding a lot of questions this year about fungi but before i get into all of the pressing questions that managers are asking let's ask the first one let's set the stage here or the table if you will diane why should a prairie manager care about these fungi well, there, there are several reasons, but three that have come to mind um, as I think about this. And the first is that we have really poor establishment when we try to get into these really high diversity mixes of species, of prairie plant species. And there have been a number of papers that have suggested that the fungi can um, improve um, the ability of, of especially these hard to establish species like the highly conservative species or the rare species, they can really improve their chances of persisting in an environment. So since those are the expensive things to establish and the hard things to establish, perhaps we can, can have a little insurance if we add um, their preferred fungi. The second thing is that climate is in fact changing and um, as Laura pointed out, the, the fungi can help um, uh, the plant attract or bring in nutrients that it couldn't otherwise access, maybe water that it couldn't otherwise access. And they actually also help with stabilizing the soil so there's less erosion. So you've got um, a couple of different things that can happen with respect to climate change um, that would be a benefit. And finally, um, we know that we, we have problems with exotic cool season grasses, the smooth brome and the Kentucky bluegrass. And we know that smooth brome in particular, but others 
can in fact change the soil biota when they invade. And so if we can somehow understand the way that we can can improve the soil biota for the the native plants as opposed to these invasive plants and give them a competitive edge over the invasive plants, I think that would also be a reason that managers should care. Those are all good reasons. And I've been thinking about this a little bit, Diane, you and I have been working on questions about prairie reconstructions together for a long time. Maybe I won't say how many years, but it's been a number of years. And it's good saying you know, there, Sarah. Good <laughs> I, won't, I won't date us. But but one thing I've noticed just even aside from this conversation is how as we move along, of course, we're getting more and more refined in the kinds of questions that we're asking and the way we're thinking about things. And this just feels like the next natural next progression is to think about some of these things that are happening underground. And you know, I've always when when I'm getting some of these questions from our managers about AMF, I'm starting to use a pollinator analogy with them that when we first started planting prairies, we really weren't thinking about pollinators per se. We were just sticking some seeds in the ground and hoping a prairie came back. And and then we started to think a little bit more about some of the invertebrate populations in our prairies and and tweaking how we were doing things to favor them. And now I'm, I'm getting to like, okay, so now maybe we're in a place where we need to think about AMF as like the next sort of way that we think about how to refine our prairie restorations. It's, it's exciting to me. So, so you told us a lot of reasons that we should care. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions or hints about how managers can support the AMF in our prairies? And maybe not even as far as like we'll get to the question about introducing them as part of the reconstruction, I think in a little bit, but just what do they need besides having plants in there? I don't know if that's a question for Diane or Laura, both of you. I think that's a Laura question. <laughs> <laughs> Which unfortunately my phone was ringing, even though I thought I had it silenced. So I got slightly distracted by that. <laughs> Would you repeat the question? I can repeat the question. So Tell me a little bit about what what do we know about how managers can support AMF in our prairies and not not even maybe necessarily in prairie reconstructions, but just broadly, what what can we do as land managers to help support AMF? Okay, that's such a great question. Um, I think that so there's a couple of things that I feel like we still don't really know the answer to that would really help us to resolve that. Um, One is this idea of host specificity. Right. So a lot of times we we see systems where where mutualists are um, really tight, are so tightly associated that specific plant species are going to have their specific um, beneficial fungi that they interact with. Um, and so if those plant species are removed, for example, if if a prairie is lost, right, then the question becomes to, you know, to what extent are those fungi still there later if we were to add those same plants back in? And so we don't we need to know more about that, right? So are there actually AM fungi that are going to be, that are important for particular native plant species? And are those the ones that are going to be lost? And then we would need potentially to add back in if we're looking at reconstructions. Um, That one piece that we still don't have a good handle on yet is how important host specificity might be. And although we definitely know that we see shifts, right, from when you have a prairie reconstruction and you have a remnant prairie, we can see the shifts in the AM fungal community that are caused by that that change, that disturbance of 
um, you know, either of the what was there before the reconstruction or the reconstruction itself. But the other piece is, I think, really, if we assume that AMF are really important for plant nutrition, um, then thinking about how nutrient availability is changing or has changed in prairies and also in reconstructions relative to prairies. So a lot of places in, in Minnesota are influenced, are affected by nitrogen deposition. And so that really changes the availability of different types of nitrogen for plants on the landscape. Um, and then phosphorus as well, right, which is, and that's a key nutrient that we know AMF are really important for in terms of partners. So if, if there's a lot of phosphorus available to plants, then they become less dependent on their fungi. And of course, as I mentioned before, the fungi are dependent on the plants. They can't exist without them. But the plants, if they have sufficient phosphorus, may actually be able to um, invest less in that partnership. And so, and that has implications not just for AM fungi, but also that means that plants are taking energy-rich resources and shunting them into their root system and then out into the soil. So that has implications for the other types of organisms that, that use that energy below ground. That's definitely something that I feel like Diane has much more to say than I do about, but um, could say more about that. But because I, I think it's just being aware of how um, it's important to think about the entire prairie ecosystem. And so of course that means, right, that means the physical environment as well as the living organisms. And so supporting AMF mean, means thinking about how do we I mean, I would prefer that we didn't have to manipulate the physical environment, but if the goal is diversity, then I think often we are at the point because humans have changed that physical environment dramatically. We, we do need to think about how we manipulate that physical environment as well to support that diversity. And I think the thing that managers might have some control over is the fertility of the land they plant into. And there are ways to with you know crops that you plant before you um, reconstruct your prairie may be able to lower some of those nutrient availabilities before you even start, which would then help um, with what Laura was talking about and making the partnership a little more equal between the AMF and the plants. Oh, that makes sense to me because we talk a lot about making sure that you get your your nitrogen situation under control before you plant prairie into it. I think Sarah's heard me say this a bunch. We often treat prairie seeds as if they're magical beans. So because they're native, we are like, we will just put them out into these environments where the soil environment has been completely changed over a history of different land uses for, you know, tens to hundreds of years. And we will just expect that they will do fine because they are native. <laughs> but that, but they are not magical beans. They're amazing and they're wonderful, but we've got to figure out how we're boosting our soil health, how we're improving our soil environment, and most importantly, probably how we are dealing with excess nitrogen that may still be in the soil and create a nice environment for weeds and not so nice an environment for the natives that we want to thrive and survive. So this makes sense to me. We talk about sopping up nitrogen and there are good ways to do that. So, okay, this question comes up a lot. And so I'm going to ask it here because I think while we're on this, how can managers support theme? I have gotten this question multiple times over the last year of should we be inoculating seeds with AMF or other fungi prior to planting? And Diane, I know that you have um, some pretty strong thoughts about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll start with you and then and then Laura can add on to that. Yeah, um, at 
with the state of the art right now, overall buying commercial inoculum may not be your best choice. Um, it's, it's easier to grow AMF that are kind of weedy and they're different, you know, some, as, as we've been talking about, some AMF are very specific to who they're going to help and the help they provide is context dependent. And so there can be, you know, you wouldn't go and get seeds from Texas to plant in Minnesota, right? So do you want AMF from God knows where to plant in Minnesota? I don't think so. So that's really the, the, the question is, can you get local ecotype AMF? And at this point, that's, it's not clear that you can. And the ways that you might be able to think of doing it might be detrimental to our native prairies. And you don't want to go digging up your remnant prairie to apply AMF to your new reconstruction. So there might be some concerns about bringing... I'm hearing two things. There, there might be concerns about bringing in non-local species because of all the things that we know about with any other kind of plant or wildlife. But then also I heard you kind of saying there are some AMF that are maybe more generalist and some that are more specific to particular plants. And so we don't know necessarily when we're buying something commercially, I suppose it probably is that that generalist side of the house and, and it it's going to be a little bit like a what a bumblebee, right? <laughs> or, or not? A, I'm sorry, a honeybee. Where it's uh, it's going to like some stuff and maybe pollinate some things, but it certainly isn't going to um, do all the support functions that we are hoping. Okay, it's kind of like doctors say: first, do no harm. I think that ecologists and land managers should plot should apply that same tenant to the work that we're doing. We should be thinking about every choice we're making. And I understand that makes it complicated, right? That means we have to think really hard, but we're already thinking really hard because our goal should be to have diverse and resilient reconstructions connecting the prairie landscape so that we can have a prairie in hundreds of years. But in order to do that, we have to be thoughtful about these choices that we're making. And I know everybody says when I when I start down my a tangent of this and people are like, great, Meg, no pressure on us, right? Like there's already so many things we have to consider. And now you're telling me to consider even bigger and even more. But I do think we need to be putting our choices into the context of, could this cause more harm than good if I do this? And we know from history, right? Like moving things around from far distances that may or may not be native to your area is a recipe for invasion and future problems. It has happened many, many times. So I don't think that that's something we want to repeat with fungi. We already know how this story ends. So we just need to figure out how do we tell a different story, right? And is there a way, like Diane said, to get local AMF? Laura, you were going to say something too. No, just that, yeah, that very much that AMF can, that there are AMF species that can be invasive, just just as there are plant species that can be invasive, um, and and with the same kinds of problems, then for the for the ecosystem as a whole. So, uh, and the commercial inocula are incredibly. I mean, so I think one thing when I'm talking to people about AM fungi is that they often don't realize that if you were to dig up a root system of a typical, I mean. There isn't really one, but <laughs> of different native prairie plant species, you're not going to find just one or two. You're going to find many different species of, of AM fungi colonizing that root system. 
So it's a it is a really diverse and really complicated system, and most many commercial inocula are actually like a single species, and even a single strain right within that species. So it's there's just no comparison. It's nothing like what a plant would encounter in a, in a remnant prairie. Well, I know that both of you are involved in some really exciting research to help us get a little bit closer to helping managers understand how we might um, successfully use AMF and safely use AMF in our prairie reconstructions. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk to us a little bit about that research project. Diane, why don't you start? Okay, well, this this project started, um, so we have a number of collaborators. We, we work with um, Nick Jordan in his lab in uh, at the University of Minnesota and a scientist who was working with him, um, Sherry Hurd and Jen Larson. So we've all been sort of working on how we can, first of all, if, if there's a difference between the AMF that occur in reconstructions versus uh, remnant prairies. And we have found some differences. That was our sort of our, our initial project was just looking at those differences if they occurred. And given that they did, we're moving into the second phase of the project, which is to look at what's the effect of those of of those differences. Can we apply native inoculum and see different different um, results than if we have the reconstruction soil only for establishment of the native plants or um, their competitive abilities against those those invasive um, cool season grasses. So, Laura, you want to take it from there? I was, yeah, I was thinking about kind of one thing that we didn't talk about. We, we, we focused on thinking about the potential when you add inoculum that you introduce an invasive species. Um, but I think also there's the flip side of that, right, which is that where do we get that inoculum? If we're not going to use a commercial inoculum, then we go into these remnant prairies and take samples and then add those into the reconstructions. And that always makes me nervous because we're creating a disturbance in the remnant prairie that we know can be problematic in terms of allowing invasive plant species in. Um, but also, of course, it's just not it's not feasible, right? There's very there's lots of places where we could have reconstructions, um, but there aren't that many remnants left, and so we can't. So I think you know there's we could definitely use, and I, I'm much more comfortable with the idea of using an inoculum that's very close to the reconstruction because then you're, you're unlikely to introduce something that wouldn't blow its way in anyway. Um, but, but then there's just that question of scale. How do you scale, how do you, de how do you design an effective inoculum and then how do you scale that up? Um, and so I think that that's, that's, that's maybe, if we see that there are these clear differences and we see that um, for some, at least some native prairie plant species, those differences really matter in terms of how well they're able to establish, then thinking about how do we actually then generate an inoculum that's feasible for managers to be able to actually add and add safely. So we were talking earlier, you said some, I keep focusing in on this, some prairie species, right? That there's these different interactions and that there's certain AMF that might have specific relationships with certain species and there's others that are generalists. We've said that a couple of times now. What, species, like give me an example of a species that might uh, have difficulty establishing but benefit from 
an AMF association. I know, right on the spot. Is it? Are they things like restoration conservative species? Are they things like, you know, lead plant or, um, gosh, now I can't even think of things off the top of my head. Ground plum, you know, blue grandma, things that, uh, June grass, things like that that tend to be restoration conservative, right. and we already know they have a different. Okay, so it is. It's, I was, mean, no, yeah, I was nodding because really you're getting at you're getting at that complexity again, right? So. So, so Diane mentioned this idea that there con there's context dependency, right? And so what yes. we see is that, and maybe this isn't too surprising, right? Is that for some native plant species, you inoculate with um, AM fungi and you always see a benefit. Um, and that benefit could be in terms of germination, it could be in terms of seedling survival, and it could be in terms of growth. Um, there are other species where it really depends on which which soil, which soil environment, for example, you're growing those plants in, which competitors are present, um, whether or not you actually see a benefit. And then there's some plants where it doesn't seem to matter. They, they're colonized, but you don't see a clear difference in plant performance that's associated with the inoculum that you're using. So we kind of see all possibilities. And so that's why, right, I was hedging my bets by always saying, for some. <laughs> for some. <laughs> that's but, a smart way to do it with ecology. Right? Um, and then, and then there are things that are really common, right? So the one that comes to mind is big blue stem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my experience, it's almost always going to be benefited, but it's also not a species that we struggle to get reestablished, right? <laughs> in reconstructions. Um, but even there, you know, I can point to some work by Peggy Schultz where she shows that the that the relationship is that the that the the extent to which it's a mutualism is context dependent, and it depends on where you know which sites you're you're planting it into. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so I think I suspect that for the things that are rare, the plant species that are rare and that we know are hard to establish for a subset of those, I think AM fungi are going to be really important. Obviously for something like lead plant, the types of, um, bacteria that they form nitrogen fixing associations with are going to be a big piece of that as well. Right. Um, and there's a, and I think in that in that mutualism we now see that there's a lot more specificity than than we used to think, um, and so it's quite possible, right, that the the symbionts that are, that are the best for lead plant may be missing from from some of those reconstruction sites, and so I think that's going to be the case for AM fungi as well. But the challenge is that those when those are rare plant species, especially threatened or endangered ones, then just getting the permission to manipulate them is really problematic, right? And and mm -hmm. so my my lab has been focusing on blanket flower because we're interested in this species that has a broad distribution you know, across the United States um, in grasslands. And, but now it's a species of special concern in Minnesota. So it's very hard for us, you know, when you work with roots, it's, it's difficult not to disturb a plant to find out more about it. Um, but it's increasingly difficult for us actually to work on that species in Minnesota to get permission to work at sites where we would potentially be disturbing the plants because there are so so few. Um, and so that makes it really challenging, right, to find out what, a, you know, do AMF play a role? Are they important? And then which AM fungal species? Because that almost always means we need to be able to dig up plants or at least parts of plants. You handled that really well, especially because I asked you the question that I hate when people ask it to me. It's like the what is the holy grail moment for plants? You know, there's always this question of like, well, tell me the one thing that I can do that every time is going to work. And with prairie restoration, it just doesn't 
work like that. It's an ecosystem and it's complex. And there's all of these different choices that lead you down potentially a different path or the same path after a certain period of time has passed. But there's just, oh, it's so exciting. It's the new frontier, Sarah. It's like space, but better than space because it's prairie. Okay, sorry if you're an astronaut and you're listening to this. Space is great too. But <laughs> this is about prairie and we love it so much. It's just- Somebody told me once that it, he loves ecology because there's so much to know and it's so complicated and it's so just complex and exciting. There's always something new to learn, but he also hates ecology because it's so <laughs> complex and so we're never going to know everything. And it is that sort of little uh, two sides of the coin there, isn't it? Yeah. And then, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, when you asked us to, to, to recommend a paper, um, I was, you know, I was thinking about how most of our research is really, for obvious reasons, confined to maybe a single site, a few mm-hmm. sites, and and that's one thing I really like about working with Diane because Diane's <laughs> like, no, we're going to look at lots of sites, right? <laughs> um, but so for managers, it's such a challenge, right? Like, how do you can can I take this like this work? I told you it's context dependent, and then it's like, but we only have this particular piece of research from one site, you know, in one place. Um, and so can I take that and actually then apply that elsewhere? And of course, at this point, the, the only reasonable answer is we don't know. Right? <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work that way somewhere else, but, but it'd be no. great to find out. So. <laughs> I also appreciate that about working with Diane. That, um, and that's one of the things I think is really exciting about that research project that you guys were telling us about is that um, you're not just using generic soil from, uh, uh, you know, a bag of miracle grow from from the hardware store, right? Diane and her folks went out and actually collected soil samples from actual reconstructions and actual remnant prairies and and uh, future reconstructions that we haven't planted yet. So, um, yeah, hopefully we will get a little bit of that hint of of the diversity of contexts, right, that are out there in the real world. It's cool stuff. And Ten let me points. Just say that that if you're if you're going to do this, don't do it in November in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> but Diane, did you should... make that mistake? <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> I won't make it again. But I also need to say that it's the partnership that allows us to have access to those sites. So the Fish and Wildlife Service and and um, TNC and in the state of Minnesota have been very helpful in just giving us access to sites that we that we can sample and broaden our inferences. So that's important. I think the best things that we do are when we do them together, particularly when we have land managers, practitioners, and researchers working hand in hand, because then you're getting real answers to real questions that we can then apply in the field to improve our prairie reconstruction and our process with all of this, which, I mean, selfishly, that's what I'm most interested in. There are lots of cool things to study, but I want to take what you've studied and I want to use it. So I think when we're all working together, it just gives us a better result. So we're talking a lot. I'm going to pivot a little bit because we we are sort of talking about soil health through all of this as a theme, but we haven't really explained, you know, why that matters in prairies and in prairie reconstructions. And so I'm going to ask each of you, you know, why is soil health a thing? Why is that important? And we've touched on it with different things that we've said. We've talked about nutrient availability. We've also talked about too much nutrients and other things like that, that would impact the soil environment and therefore impact establishment and 
persistence of some species. So talk to us in general, just so we all have a collective understanding of why does soil health matter in prairies? Why should we think about it? Laura, we'll start with you. Well, you know, as as an ecologist, as a scientist, like I really struggle with the idea of soil health. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to start. Okay. <laughs> um, because, but but so what I will say, so I guess I'll just I'll tell a story, right? So um, I sent some samples off from some soil samples off from Frenchman's Bluff um, Scientific and Natural Area, and then um, from an ag site um, nearby in Clay County, Minnesota. And so I sent them off for analysis at a soils lab and they were supposed to just look at physical characteristics, but they, um, because it's really expensive to look at the things that they measure for soil health, um, like phospholipid fatty acids. So they, by mistake, they did a phospholipid fatty acid profile. Um, and they sent me a note and they said, we think there's something wrong with our analysis because the PLFA um, is way too high. Right. And so I looked to see like, well, what soil samples did they run this on? Right. And it turns out that so they ran the ag and they ran the, the Frenchman's Bluff and they I don't think they'd ever seen a profile from an, you know, a remnant prairie. Um, and it was astonishing to me because it wasn't like there was a little bit more fossil, you know, uh, PL, I'm just going to say PLFA. It's easier. Yep. Um, it was off the charts. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what that tells me is that regardless of what we want to call that, to me, that just showed the, that that soil is living, it's alive, and it's full of organisms that are do, you know, going about their day. Um, and the ag soil isn't, right? That particular ag soil was not, um, not alive in the same way at all. So I think while I might struggle a little bit with that term, the point really, I think the place where we can all agree is that, is that a living soil um, is, is right. It's by definition, it's full of life. And so that becomes its own, it really becomes its own universe. Right. And so we can have a very simplistic one, a really boring one, a very homogeneous one, or we can have a very heterogeneous, diverse, um, complex one that's really difficult to understand. And they're not, they're obviously not going to be the same thing. Right? And they're not going to do the same thing. I like that you said them. do the same thing because I was thinking of function, like the function right. of that remnant prairie, you know, it's got to be higher than the function of the soil you're comparing it to. Well, there's, yeah, so that there's, there's a diversity below ground that's reflecting, you know, what we can see above ground. Um, and, it, and then it's probably orders of magnitude beyond. Right? That, and that's where the diversity is, right? Is under, right. Underneath. <laughs> Diane, do you have anything you would like to add? I think that's a great story. I, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. No, I like it. And I think it's interesting because to me, when I hear that term soil health, I think of it in the context of just a way to, to make soil communities make sense because they are so complex and so diverse. So to me, it provides a useful analogy of, okay, if I'm a person and all I eat every day are cheeseburgers, I might be a happy person, but I am probably not a healthy person with that kind of a diet, right? But if I'm a person who takes in different things and makes my diet more diverse, then I probably would be a healthier person. And so to me, that term soil health 
is synonymous with diversity. What's the level of diversity in your soil? How what function is in the soil. So I, I like the way that you described it too, because I just think of it as like a helpful way to describe the ecosystem. Well, and I hadn't really thought about why, why I feel that urge to sort of push back against that term. But I think that that, that brings us to, to a topic that I think is really important, which is this idea of negative feedback, right? And so what we see in, in soil-plant interactions, where we're, and then we're talking about all the organisms that live in that soil, um, is that the most common plant species over time are the ones that began to be attacked the most by different pests, by different pathogens, as the, as those as those negative associates start to you know do better because that's the, the most abundant species, and so we know that that negative feedback plays a really important role in maintaining diversity because it knocks back the most abundant or most common um, organisms on the landscape and allows other ones to proliferate. So it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive, right? But a healthy soil may actually be a, a soil that's full of <laughs> pathogens and pests as well that are going to reduce the abundance of that most common species and allow other ones to persist. Oh, so that makes sense to me. Right. I see. Yeah. Now I understand even more. Yep. Because we don't want to assume that healthy means that there's nothing... I don't know how to describe this. I don't want to say bad, but there's nothing negative in the system, right? There, yeah. like in ecology, there are negative feedback loops and there are positive feedback loops. And arguably, we might perceive them differently. Like disease would be an example. Generally, we perceive disease as bad, but it's also a really important ecological feedback loop so that we have balance in the system, particularly when you're thinking about things like overpopulation of deer or something like that. That would be where... If we don't have a natural predator, we need some sort of mechanism to achieve balance. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you had a question. That's fascinating. I just had I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a question, but now my mind is just like <laughs> cranking away. I well, one thing I was thinking about too is that, um, you know, the topic of our podcast is is AMF, but a couple times both of you have mentioned that there's lots of other organisms and the diversity of life underground is is more than AMF. So part one of my question is, why are we so focused on AMF right now? Why is that the one that won our attention? And the other part of my question is, what's your other favorite? You should have said, what's your other favorite fungi, Sarah? You missed a brilliant opportunity what's for alliteration. Other, no. <laughs> favorite soil microbe. <laughs> oh, dang. It's just not as fun to say, but okay, I'll allow it. Morels. You, morel. <laughs> no. So why, why, Laura, why did they win our attention? Oh, I think probably because they are beneficial, right? At least in some contexts, they're definitely beneficial. So I guess I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I know why they win my attention, because actually, if you, if you look at their spores, they're beautiful, um, and they're really beautiful organisms, uh, both the spores and then also when they're... One of the things that amazed me the first time that I stained a root um, and looked at it was that it was full of AM fungi. Like, they were probably half of the root, and I didn't expect that, right? I don't know. I don't know what I thought <laughs> I would see, but I was surprised. You really... Like, when you look at those... When you look at the root systems of a plant that... Um, 
that forms that close association with AM fungi, you see that it's it really is a partnership in the sense that physically you can actually see that it's like half and half. Um, so it's, and not all not all plant species have that that cultivate that much of a community inside their roots, but but certainly some of them do. Um, all right, the rest of your question was like a really tall order. <laughs> Picking favorites is always hard. <laughs> no, but just tell us about some other 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 important soil microbes that um, maybe we haven't thought about. When I started working on on mycorrhizas, they weren't a big topic, right? And it's really, like, I think, I don't, th that's not, you know, that's not a question for a scientist. It's <laughs> right. really a question for a social scientist, I think, for, not for a physical or a natural scientist. Um, because, because why do certain ideas take hold at certain times and then snowball? It's not necessarily because they're the best one for that particular moment in time. <laughs> Can you tell I'm a little bit of a skeptic, <laughs> even on my own, my own research? Topic. You're a true scientist. Um, We're always uh, evaluating our own work <laughs> and the work of others, looking at yeah. it with a critical eye. But so, yeah, and I think I wonder to some extent if it's a little bit of a shortcut because, in fact, if you look at the research, we're often using whole soil inoculum because it's really difficult to isolate, for example, the spores. Um, so that you, like, it's very difficult to know that you're just working with mycorrhizal fungi. And it turns out even if you just, if you isolate the spores and then inoculate plants with those spores, those spores themselves have, have symbionts that live inside them. So different bacteria, for example, helper bacteria, um, we call them helper bacteria. We don't necessarily know if they're really helping or not, but so there's always, there's always the possibility that it's not the AM fungi, but it's other things that are being carried along with them. Um, and of course it's probably an and rather than an either. Right. So, so in that inoculum, certainly AM fungi are an important component, but the other microbes that are there are also important. Um, and so let's see a favorite, I mean, a favorite microbe other than AMF, I think every time I look at a root system, I see a fungus when we stain them, I see fungi that I have never seen before. Um, and sometimes those show really interesting patterns in like which root systems we see them in. Um, and yet we, you know, we don't know, we often don't know who they are and we don't know what they do. So I think my, my favorite thing about working in the system is probably just that there are so many unknowns. And so there's, there's, you know, there's different threads that you could pull on. <laughs> and Diane, what about you? You, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't have the experience of actually seeing the AMF, so I can't speak to their beauty. Um, and I, I guess I, I feel like AMF came up for me because because we were seeing these interactions, and I, I'm totally an interactions biologist, and the fact that they could change so much depending on the context, uh, that just draws my attention right away. And I think that's, as a scientist, that's what attracted me to them. Um, but I find them incredibly frustrating because when you think about a prairie plant, you have a name of the plant you, that puts in mind where it is, what its habitat is, what it wants. With an AMF, you have an OTU, an Operational Taxonomic Unit. And that doesn't tell me anything at this point about 
that organism. And, and so I find that it's great that we have GenBank and we, we have a, the ability to, to understand the diversity, but we don't yet know what each of those does. And I think that's um, beginning to understand what those taxa do is for me the great challenge. And, and what would be fulfilling to me to know is, is to be able to say, this is this, is this, this species of AMF and it does this and it likes that and it lives here. You know, that's that's what I think would would really be exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Good stuff. We've got to move on to our next section because we are just running out of time here. Let's science to the literature. Science. All right. So this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And we're just going to pile on to all of this great research that we've already been talking about today and hear about some of your Let Science picks. Diane, let's start with you. What's your pick and what can you tell us about it? Okay, my pick is a paper. Let's see, it's by Jack et al. 2021, Microbial Inoculant, Silver Bullet, or Microbial Jurassic Park. And it, the reason I picked it is that we really need to recognize that these are living organisms that we're interested in, in inoculating, for example. And I think it's really important to, um, to recognize that all this stuff we've talking about, we've been talking about with the below ground diversity, um, if we're just adding, just because we can't see the microbes we're adding doesn't mean that they aren't doing stuff and it's not important in an ecosystem fashion. And I think this, even though this, is, this article is a bit more agricultural than natural area oriented, it, it brings up some really good points about about not ignoring things that we can't see. I love that. Laura, your pick. Yeah, so I kind of struggled with this assignment because <laughs> there's so many things, great things to read out there right now. Um, but um, I ended up picking this article by um, Tara Lubin and Peggy Schultz Jim Beaver and Helen Alexander, who are at the University of Kansas. Um, and this came out in 2019 in Restoration Ecology. And it was just a single site, um, but they basically manipulated seeding density um, in, a, in their reconstruction. And then they also used whole soil inoculum from a remnant prairie and inoculated a subset of five different native prairie plant species and looked and then and then actually wait, you know, followed these for for four years um, to see what it looked like in terms of cover and diversity at the end. Um, and basically found that both were important for, for in increasing diversity in, in the reconstruction. Um, so, and I, I thought that was just a, a nice example of kind of, if we have more studies like that, then we can start to really build a better sense of, we can start to make general generalities, right? And think about what are the general rules that we can that we know we can apply just about. Anywhere. I love general rules. <laughs> I do. I wasn't. That sounded sarcastic, but I did not mean it sarcastic. I really do. I, that's what we try to give prairie managers all the time: are guidelines, not recipes. 
because you don't have to do it the same way every time. There's lots of different paths for successful reconstruction. But there are also, as we know, certain things you could do that uh, would lead to failure. So, so we want to give people guidelines for success. Yeah. And then the other thing about like a paper like this that I love, right, is like they had to pick a certain time that they were going to plant these things. Right. And we know that that matters. So, right. So it's this great little, it's this really nice study, but still it raises all sorts of questions. Would you see the same thing if you, you know, seeded in fall versus spring, et cetera, right? Those, all so the pieces of the puzzle that we have to start putting together, right? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Sarah. You know what I'd really like to do? What? I'd like to go take a hike. Oh, I love how you guys say that. You say it's so nice. Like, we're going to take a hike together. That Mike Warland, he always says, why don't you take a hike? <laughs> so, you know, it's just so nice. I get to hike with some pleasant folks. It's just wonderful. I'm just kidding. Mike's pleasant, too. All right. We're going to start with Laura. Where are we hiking today? I think we should go to Frenchman's Bluff Scientific and Natural Area. So the highest point in northwestern Minnesota, you get to stand in beautiful remnant prairie and and look around and see how how much um, Western European expansion has modified the landscape over the last 150 years. I like vistas. I really do. I'm a sucker for a good vista. Diane, where are we hiking? Well, it would be a short <laughs> hike, but... <laughs> Um, you know how they always say the best camera is the camera you have with you? Well, I think you should take a hike in your own yard and look at your own prairie. My personal favorite place to look at prairie is in my yard. I can go out in the summer and watch the bees and I can see all the diversity that's happening right in my um, suburban yard. And if everybody did that, you know, we could, we could have a lot of prairie. So that's, that's my choice. You'd have a lot of prairie and a lot less traffic. <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. You just, stand, you just stand outside your yard in your pajamas, however you want to. You can just hang out and look at your own prairie. I like it. I also found over the past year that I spent a lot of time in my yard, like a lot more time in my yard and just appreciating all of my beautiful little prairie plants and probably over tending them since, you know, that's what I had front of mind to do. So they were probably like, when does this lady leave again? <laughs> would, like, would like it if she would stop trying to <laughs> make sure that we're healthy all the time. <laughs> just leave us alone. We got this. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. <laughs> That's how I imagine they talk to me. Okay. Hi, just, this was so great. Sarah, you did amazing. Oh, I'm thanks. so glad you did. And Diane and Laura, we, this was a great episode. I'm really excited. I learned a lot. I learned a ton of stuff. So much. And so much. And next week, the learning doesn't stop because we're going to be hosting a very special episode of the Prairie Pod where we are featuring places near and dear to our hearts. You guessed it. Minnesota State Parks and Trails, folks. We'll be joined by six Prairie Park managers and naturalists to share the special prairie places in the parks that they and we love. It's basically one giant take a hike episode where you'll hear insider tips from the people who know the parks best because they're caring for them every day so that we can go out and enjoy them. I can't wait. 
I'm so excited to get like this insider tour of Minnesota State Park. As always, all of the resources that we mentioned today can be found on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by the fantastic Dan Ryder and engineered by the fabulous Jed Beecher. Man, go out and have a great rest of your week and find some fungi. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>